So this evening I'd like to talk about the quality of compassion, which is the second of the four Brahma-viharas that the Buddha spoke, to, spoke about, these divine abodes, these divine dwelling places of the heart, supreme or beautiful places that we can dwell in in our heart, how we can cultivate it, what might get in the way of it, how it arises in the context of meta-practice, and how we can take it into the world, into our lives. <clears throat> so, as we refer to in, in these teachings, <laughs> so, in the context of this practice, um, the quality of the heart, as we've said, changes according to the conditions it's in. So, as we cultivate the, the, the heart of kindness, when that heart, when that attention meets some pain or difficulty or struggle or suffering, the response that arises more naturally when the metaphor heart is present is compassion. So it has this capacity to turn and develop a certain flavor when it turns towards uh, happiness and joy of others, it becomes this quality of mudita. So I remember giving this talk some time ago, and uh, it was close to uh, the Winter Olympics in Canada. And uh, I remember this very poignant incident that was really a beautiful uh, outflow of compassion, as there, as there are many in the world uh, with various tragedies, great and small, um, whether it's the shootings in Arizona or what happened in Haiti or you know, various things that, that trigger this responsiveness in the human heart. And, um, but this example stuck in my, in my memory uh, of when um, there was a Canadian skater, Joni Fauchette, um, who was on her way to skate uh, at the Olympics for her country. And two days before the competition, her mother was on the way to, the, to, to watch her and she, she had a heart attack and died. And so um, this skater had to uh, make the choice of either to c carry on skating and with the grief or, or, or pull out. And she decided to carry on, as I'm sure you're familiar with this story. Uh, very touching. And so, and then the whole country got behind it because it was such a traumatic event. You know, her whole life she'd spent with her mother learning to skate. And uh, of course she skated incredibly beautifully and powerfully. And, but what was impactful for me was just the tremendous outpouring of compassion. The, the whole stadium was weeping and the commentators were weeping. and just this really uh, tangible sense of compassion. And I m speak this example because, um, again, sometimes we think of these qualities as something that's not so accessible or not so available to us. You know? And I often got tripped up with that word compassion because it sounds, I've heard it uh, in, lo with in, in lofty connotations. Um, and something that's often talked about in a way that didn't sound so accessible to me. 
And of course, it's just like any of these other qualities we're developing, they are available. They are in nature. It's the nature of the heart when it's unhindered, unblocked, uh, that these qualities can flow. So as I'm speaking tonight, listen as well as listening through the normal way you listen, listen through your body and your heart. Just see what gets elicited as I speak. So it becomes a practice in itself as you're here. And as I was reflecting on this theme, I was thinking about just the innumerable ways that we as human beings are vulnerable to difficulty, to stress, to change, to suffering, to pain, to loss. Right? You don't get through this life, you don't live for very long without feeling some of those turbulences, just like Gina spoke to yesterday of the vicissitudes, the, the gain and loss, the pleasure, pain. You know, we can't give a Dharma talk without getting, you know, both lots of praise and lots of blame. <laughs> How come you said that? That was beautiful, but why did you say that? You know, but there's much greater suffering in the world than that. Um, that you know, just what happened in the last year or two in this country and around the world with the, with the, the economies crashing, massive unemployment, massive loss of income and benefits and retirement and insecurity and stability and jump in food prices and greater, greater hunger. And, um, you know, you can't look anywhere without feeling and seeing the distress in the world. And then, of course, being here when we take a look in our inner life, we also begin to uncover the places that we may have forgotten about or we're too busy to feel or we're uh, too distracted to notice. And so we touch very uh, deep, vulnerable, sore, tender places. Not everybody, not all the time, but at, during times in our life and in our practice, that is true. And as teachers, we get to hear a lot of the of what goes on, you know, you come into this room and everyone's sitting like a Buddha, radiant and beautiful, and then we get to hear actually the, 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 the particular challenges each person's going through. Someone today spoke of their sister-in-law who has fourth stage pancreatic cancer, who has two young children. And just one example of many, many uh, examples here. There's this line um, that I like a lot, it says, be kind to every person you meet because each person has been asked to carry a great burden. And we don't necessarily know each other's burdens. You know, you look around a room, you wouldn't know of people's life history and whether their parents they're looking after have dementia or Alzheimer's or their children are suffering with who knows what. Uh, we don't see that. Um, but to remember that nobody gets away in this life without having some burden to carry which is why these qualities of the heart are taught to meet ourselves and meet each other in the world with some tenderness, with some kindness, with some love. So I want to read one of my favorite, current favorite poets, uh, a poet called Marie Howe. And um, she's speaking to her brother who passed away at a young age, 28. And she's talking about this human life. And, it, and I feel like she really captures the, 
an aspect of this uh, life. And I'm going to put on my multicolored glasses for this one. No, I can't see anything with those. <laughs> I could in the other room. Huh. <laughs> I'm new to the reading glasses thing, as you can tell. Okay, here we go. I think you have to pick it up. That's right. <laughs> I hope you will have great compassion for this struggle here. Okay. <laughs> Gina's offering to read it. It's very kind. I'll, I'll do, I'll try. <laughs> this is called What the Living Do. Dear Johnny, it's her brother. The kitchen sink has been clogged for days, some utensil probably fell down there. And the drainer won't work but smells dangerous, and the crusty dishes have piled up, waiting for the plumber I still haven't called. This is the everyday we spoke of. It's winter again. The skies are deep headstrong blue, and the sunlight pours through the open living room window because the heat's on too high in here, and I can't turn it off. For weeks now, driving or dropping a bag of groceries in the street, the bag breaking, I've been thinking, this is what the living do. And yesterday, hurrying along those wobbly bricks in the Cambridge sidewalk, spilling my coffee down my wrist and sleeve, I thought it again and again later when buying a hairbrush. This is it, parking, slamming the door shut in the cold, what you call that yearning, what you finally gave up. We want the spring to come and the winter to pass. We want the spring to come and the winter to pass. We want to, whoever to call or not to call, a letter, a kiss. We want more and more and then more of it. But there are moments walking when I catch a glimpse of myself in the window glass, say of the window of the corner video store, and I'm gripped by a cherishing so deep for my own blowing hair, my chapped face, an unbuttoned coat, that I'm speechless. I am living. I remember you. I always find that very moving, that the last piece of that poem. I'm gripped by cherishing so deep for my own blowing hair, my chapped face, and unbuttoned coat, that I'm speechless. So what I like about that poem is that she speaks to meeting where she is, the mess of our lives. You know, not, the, not the lives that we see on TV that look all so manicured and perfect and happy and organized. No, the chaos and the mundanity and the struggle and the uh, uncertainty um, and, the, and thing, the things that don't work. And she meets that. And in that meeting, in that openness, there's a crack, there's a window where she sees, oh, she sees a reflection and there's a tenderness. There's a, oh yeah, that too, that too. So, um, as we've said often here, this, these practices of mindfulness and metta, they, they come together in this, in this very quality of how we meet our situation, how we meet ourselves, how we meet our lives, how we meet the pain of our heart, the struggle in our relationship, the grief of loss. How do we meet that? And every moment, every situation, we have a choice. We have an, it's an opportunity to learn, to open, to feel, to meet, to be kind, to be forgiving, 
we can do something else. We can check out. We can resist. We can hate. We can blame. We can complain. We can do whatever we do to avoid these things. But of course, that doesn't work so well. You tried that, and that's why you're here. (laughs) (laughs) Otherwise, you'd be at the movies or in Hawaii or (laughs) somewhere. It's like, you know, that's okay, but it, it's something that gets unle- left out in some ways. So the poet Hafez put it in an in a interesting frame. He said, um, you carry all the ingredients to turn your life into a nightmare. Do not mix them. You, <laughs> carry all the, you carry all the ingredients to turn your life into a nightmare. Do not mix them. And you carry all the ingredients to turn your life into joy, into happiness. Mix them and mix them. So we see here, you know, we're under the honey on the razor's edge of practice. We see how it's not the experience that determines our well-being, it's how we relate to it. It's not the, the sadness that blows through our heart or the grief that comes. That doesn't determine whether we're happy or sad. It's how we are with it. If we meet it fully with openness, with presence, with kindness, it's just the next thing. It's tender, it's sad, it's not, maybe not easy to be with, but it's okay, we can, be, we can have a peaceful heart in the middle of it. This is from Rumi. He writes, If God said, dear Rumi, pay homage to everything that has helped you enter my arms, there would not be one experience of my life, not one thought, not one feeling, not any act I would not bow down to. God says, Rumi, pay homage to everything that has helped you enter my arms. What has allowed you to arrive here? What has allowed you to turn towards yourself? What has allowed you to come home? And it's often the struggles and the turmoil and the conflict and the pain and the abandonments and the losses. Sometimes it's the inspiration and and all of that, but often it's the very things that we grapple with that we least want to invite in that turn our attention to something deeper, something more sacred, something more mystical, more beautiful, more profound. And of course, in that turning to ourselves, we both not only learn how to be with our own suffering, our own pain, but we learn how to, through this, through the, through the generosity of the practice, we learn how to be that for others. And we only learn how to do that with others when we really can do it for ourselves. And that's the work that we're doing here. So it sometimes may, sometimes feels discon- it may feel disconnected. Well, what's this got to do with my life and my work and my, my activism or whatever I'm involved in? And it has everything to do with that. Because how you are here in this moment with yourself, with each other, is how you are in the world. And you get to really look at that and potentially transform it. And in my experience, this turning towards ourselves, this coming home, 
gives tremendous uh, capacity, tremendous resources, tremendous strength and courage. So as Gina mentioned yesterday, and I want to reiterate this point, that I always feel like these teachings started from the seed of compassion. I mean, the Buddha looked around and he saw what we do. I mean, you can see it looking around the world, that the, the mess that we create out of our ignorance and delusion and our greed and our selfishness. Yeah, he said it, was the same, it was the same patterns, different, different characters and different kings and presidents and whatnot. But same disaster, same mess. And so we have the good fortune from his understanding and from the thousands of millions of people who've practiced, we get to, we get to receive some of, the, um, some of the, the, the manual for how to live in this life with some clarity, with some compassion. There's a beautiful story of when he's with his monks and one of the monks has, uh, gets sick with dysentery and um, everybody's going about their busy way, and uh, he's just left alone, and he's really weak, can't get up, can't bathe himself, and he's, 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 all, he's soiled, and, and the Buddha goes in and tends to him, and cleans him, and feeds him, and looks after him, and he scolds the monk. He says, look, you know, this practice is, we have to take care of each other. We are our mothers and fathers. We have to be kind with each other. You know, it's not just about sitting on your cushion, waking up. It's about how we live in this world, how we are with each other. So what exactly is this quality? Compassion, compassion. To feel, to resonate, to resonate with the suffering of another. Beautiful quality. The Dalai Lama said, if you want to know what compassion is, look deeply into the eyes of a mother as she cradles her sick and fevered child. It's the quality of compassion. Or it's just something as simple as you walk into the hall here or in the dining room and somebody's in tears, somebody's crying, as, uh, as often happens on retreat. And you just feel that tenderness in the heart. There's just a resonance. The Buddha called it a quivering, a, a warmth, a movement. You know, when the heart's open, we feel, we feel, we, we let it in. So it's a sense of empathy, a sense of resonating because we know that experience in ourselves. Even, if we, even, though we, even though we have no idea what's going on for them, we sense often someone's sadness or grief. And so we feel that. This is, from, uh, this is one of the rare exceptions I get to uh, uh, quote from our president. Don't usually quote presidents in Dharma talks, but here we go. As he's talking about empathy. He says, you know, there's a lot of talk in this country about the federal deficit. But I think we should talk more about our empathy deficit, the ability to put ourselves in someone else's shoes, to see the world through the eyes of those who are different from us. The child who's hungry, the steel worker who's been laid off, the family who lost the entire life they built together when the storm came to town. When you think like this, when you choose to broaden your ambit of concern and empathize with the plight of others, whether they are close friends or distant strangers, it becomes harder not to act harder not to help. So this is, a, this is a, an aspect of compassion, this, this capacity to, to feel and empathize with another. 
It's the feeling of concern. It's the feeling of care. It's the feeling of wanting to uh, uh, relieve. And I'll talk a little more about that later in the talk about the, the movement of the heart. Right now I'm going to talk about the feeling itself. It's the feeling of caring. The way we might care for ourselves when we're sick or when we're injured or we care for a loved one. Or when we see an animal, you know, at Spirit Rock we have these birds, we have these swallows nest that nest right above where the meditation hall entrance is. And they, in the summer they nest and they, they rear their young, these little quivering little baby swallows, and just incredibly adorable. And you want nothing but for them to live and to be, to be safe and to be protected and to fly and to be fed. And, you know, it's just, you know, it's not like, oh, you know, swallows. You know, it's just, it's not what happens. You know, you just, you root for life. You know, I remember once walking up there and there was an owl trying to get into their nest and the parents were distressed. I was like, no, (laughs) go away. You know, and then you feel compassion for the owl because he's hungry, like, and then, you you know, and and that's when it gets interesting. You know, and you have compassion for the whole, for all of it, for life living its thing. And you know, it's part of that, that one, being has to eat another being in, in, some, in some of those chains of life. So one of my favorite stories is a story about a young child. Um, they, they had somebody organized a competition to find the most caring child. It's a weird concept, but <laughs> they did, you know, as thing people do. And... Um, the winner was a four-year-old child whose next-door neighbor was an elderly man who had recently lost his wife. And upon seeing the man cry, the little boy went into the old gentleman's yard, climbed onto his lap, and just sat there. And when his mother later asked him what he had said to the neighbor, the little boy said, Ah, nothing. I just helped him cry. This is a four-year-old boy. So, you know, it's, it's, it's natural. It's in us. Sometimes we feel it as a tender sadness. We, feel, we hear about um, in species becoming endangered or instinct. You know, we hear about the, the whales, dam- the, the, the sonar, the Navy sonar damaging the whale's ears, and we just feel a sadness. It's just like a poignant tenderness of the, the, the suffering that gets inflicted on each other and on creatures, innocent, beautiful beings, just through our own ignorance and our own delusion. And we feel a sadness, it's a poignancy. And just like with um, the meta practice, there's a lot of wisdom that arises out of the compassion practice. Yeah, although it's a heart practice, and in Buddhism, Buddhist psychology, heart and mind are not considered separate entities. That the mind is located in the heart center Again, the Dalai Lama said, if you want others to, to be happy, practice compassion. If you want yourself to be happy, practice compassion. So there's a wisdom in it. There's a wisdom in that it connects us with our, our, our common humanity, our commonality, and the universality of experience. If you think about you know, these, these um, times when there's, when there's national or global suffering, it's, it's one of the ways that we most feel connected with each other. You know, 
one of the ways we feel that bond is by sensing, yes, we're all in this. We're all a victim to whatever it is, whether it's natural calamities or who knows what the calamity is. And so to let this, that aspect in, sometimes we personalize our suffering and we blame ourselves. Well, I'm the only one. I'm doing something wrong. It's my fault. If only I figured this, this thing called life out, I wouldn't suffer. You know? And then but we feel, when we, when we look deeply into it, it's like, no, this is partly the nature of things here. It's not all there is, but it's part of experience. And it's part of the human condition as we age, as we get sick, as we lose loved ones. So how to develop this quality, this abode of the heart? So like a lot of these practices, uh, a primary way to develop it is through the relationship to ourselves, the practice of self-compassion, the practice of meeting our own pain and sorrow and difficulty. So Kristen Neff, who's a researcher, um, psychologist, uh, just written a book on just about to come out on self-compassion. She talks about three aspects of self-compassion. Involves being kind and understanding to oneself in instances of suffering. Involves recognizing the pain and failure are an unavoidable aspects of the shared human experience. And finally, self-compassion entails the ability to face rather than avoid painful feelings and thoughts. The last one, of course, our mindfulness practice really supports that because we turn towards rather than turn away from our difficulty. So, and again, I want to reiterate or re-emphasize that this quality is not far from the nature of the heart. This is those examples I mentioned. And, and to, just as I talked about in the meta instructions this afternoon, to um, not think as we develop a quality like compassion, it's like pulling in something from somewhere else that lives at IMS or lives in some Buddha somewhere. No, it's part of the fabric of our being that requires you know, some nurturance and some, the right conditions for it to come forth. My favorite cartoon about that is uh, one from Gary Larson, a great Dharma teacher, <laughs> who um, he has this picture of uh, Satan in hell, and uh, he's tending his fiery, you know, dens, and um, and he's shouting, "Mom, no, don't do that! No, 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 no!" And uh, the caption underneath the picture says, uh, despite his repeated efforts to explain things to her, Satan could never dissuade his mother from offering cookies and milk to the accursed. (laughs) And so there's a picture of Satan's mom with a little tail and little ears and a tray of cookies and milk to the fresh recruits coming in. And so that's, you know, it's instinctual for us. And it gets blocked when, you know, through trauma and through overwhelm, and I'll say a little about that. Um, but, but importantly, 
the, and again, where, where the practice of, of compassion and mindfulness come together is for, for compassion to arise, it means we turn towards the difficulty. Normally in our lives, we instinctively turn away, because why, why wouldn't we turn away from the difficult and the painful? But for this quality to rise, it means we need to lean into, turn towards, and face, to feel, to look honestly, nakedly at what, what's happening. The sadness, the loss, the fear, the anxiety, the pain of ourselves or another. As Ajahn Chah says, usually we run away from suffering, but running away from suffering, we run towards it. So the wisdom of mindfulness and compassion, we turn towards suffering, not because we, you know, we're suffering holics, but we, we turn towards it to understand it, to free it, to liberate it. And maybe you've seen that here, you know, if you, in the days and the hours and the minutes tick by very slowly and you're feeling whatever you're feeling, you know, and you get lots of opportunity to, to be with your experience and to see whether you reject it, criticize it, judge it, avoid it, hate it, distract yourself from it. And, and then you realize it kind of doesn't quite go away. It's like this lump on your shoulder that you keep lugging around. It's like, how come that's still there? I've had six cups of tea and two cups of coffee and well, it's still there. Like, what's up with that? You know, six hours later, oh, Maybe I could feel it. Oh, yeah, sadness. Oh, it feels like this. Oh, it's actually not too bad when I turn into it, when I feel it. Oh, not pleasant, but it's, oh, it's sort of tender and soft. And so to invite yourself to, to perhaps uh, develop a, a new habit, to see the recoiling and, and the, the knee-jerk reaction away, and to go, oh, maybe I can lean into this. Maybe I can soften into this. Maybe it's not as bad as, as the resistance leads me to believe. Sometimes we resisted things for years, if not decades, and the resistance has gotten so big because we've built it up for so long, and the thing over the wall of resistance is actually quite small. But it does require we turn into it. There's a, I remember working with somebody here a couple of years ago, maybe even last year, and um, she was a gardener farmer, and she talked about having this really tight, hard nut, like a seed, like a, like a walnut in her heart that she'd felt for a long time. And on the retreat, she was just really stuck with it. Like it really, she couldn't ignore it, couldn't run away from it. And so we just did some work around softening into it, feeling it, breathing into it, allowing it, being curious about it. And over time, it softened, and the tears came, and the tears, you know, using the gardening metaphor, were like rain. It like sort of moistened the earth, moistened the, and it allowed the um, the hardness of the nut, the seed, to crack open. And as it cracked open, over time, as the days of the retreat went on, this little sprout came out. This is like seedling, of new life, of of possibility, of openness. And, and eventually it melted away into this kind of leaving us very soft, warm heart. So we all have our hard nuts of experience, whatever that is in our body, in our, in our heart, in our minds, in our history. And uh, the invitation is to turn into them 
as, as, as much as you are able to. And then you see by doing that, that one of the things that comes is a kind of fearlessness. As the more we practice turning into, leaning into that which is difficult, that which we've been afraid of, it begins to develop a kind of fearlessness, a courage, a strength, that we're no longer intimidated or afraid of the things that lurk within us. And then we're no longer afraid of the situations or the people that trigger that in us because we're not afraid of that in ourselves. So this is a poem I read that sort of speaks to this. It's called Descent into Love. Who would have known that to burrow into your own shadows, to step gently into those dungeons that hide their forbidding secrets and sore and tender memories that you've spent a lifetime avoiding and running from, that they would be the very passageway that begins with a crack, a hairline splinter in the rock that lets in a warm ray of light that leads you down into the fleshy room of your heart and begins to soften that house that has been vacant for years, filling it with a sweetness, an unimaginable openness, where the hard boundaries that separated you for so long from the rigid edges of your world start to become porous and dissolve, and your skin becomes so thin it starts to feel every impression of this harsh and welcoming life. And that's when you come to know the other like your own. And that's where it begins. The love you've waited for starts moving like the breath, no longer making distinction between inside and outside. And that's when you can't help but fall in love with everything. So I use that metaphor of the crack, but it could be a seed. It could be some way that we venture into the places in us that we've avoided, escaped from, run from, rejected. And often those places are the very things that allow a certain kind of metamorphosis, transformation. So in the context of the metta practice, often we wishing metta for ourselves or for another. And then at some point we may touch some difficulty, some pain, some sadness, some anger, some frustration, and either or some, some the, the pain of the person we're wishing for or the pain in ourselves. And it feels at some point inauthentic or incongruent to be say, may you be happy when you know your friend or loved one is feeling a lot of grief or tremendous physical pain. And so the, the phrases, may you be happy or may you be joyful or whatever your phrases are, just seem to not mm, um, be so accurate or so relevant. And so um, often it's appropriate to, uh, to shift the practice to uh, using a compassion phrase that really speaks to and meets where you are, meets where the person you're wishing the metaphor is. So, um, the, and there's a, there's a way of doing the compassion practice very similar to the meta practice in that you are wishing the person to be free of suffering, to be free of pain. And so the primary phrase is, may you be free of pain and suffering. May I be free of pain and suffering. 
Another, another phrase would be, may you hold your suffering with ease. May you be with your suffering with ease. Because sometimes it, you know, we may know that someone has a terminal illness that may perhaps unlikely to be free of that. But may they hold themselves and their pain, their difficulty with ease. So feel free to use those phrases at times, or of course ones that feel more attuned to you and where you are, where you're, the person you're wishing for is. Um, and it can help just to tune the heart to this quality of care, of compassion. As you're doing the meta practice, one of the things that comes up, one of the things that happens in the course is that we, as we've mentioned in different ways, we encounter some of the obstacles, the ways that our heart gets shut down or frozen or afraid, contracted, whether it's because we fear <clears throat> opening our heart, we'll, we're, there's a fear that we'll be overwhelmed by someone else's suffering. Um, or we feel that just there's just a, such a habitual way of rejecting our own pain or another's pain. One of the ways that we that we encounter the obstacle is in the way that we're harsh to ourselves, and, and the the far enemy, the the the, the uh, one of the main obstacles to this quality of compassion is the quality of cruelty, of harshness. And we can see that often comes up in our, in our practice here, in either meta practice or mindfulness practice, in the way that we are with ourselves, that we're harsh, that we you know, usually we may not think of ourselves as a cruel person, and, and probably uh, that's probably not so true for you here in, in context, in relation to other people, but quite often so with ourselves. How many ways might you be cruel to yourself? or harsh to yourself, or punishing of yourselves, or pushing and demanding of yourself, or the ridiculous high standards. You know, it's day four, and I'm still not loving all beings everywhere. What's up with me? My practice sucks. Everybody else is enlightened. And you're just a slacker. You know, you just don't get up early enough. You mooch around, blah, blah. You know, and this voice can be very damaging. And of course, it doesn't just arise because you're doing a meta-retreat. It's, it's, you're just seeing it in the context of the meta-retreat, but it probably punishes you and judges you and condemns you for the way that you work or the way that you communicate or the way that you don't clean your car or don't pick up your socks or don't, who knows what it is. But you know, that, that harsh part of the mind can really cause a lot of damage with that, with that force. And so it's really important to notice it to recognize it, thank you. You can acknowledge it, may you be happy. And to feel the pain of that also. Well, also, you know, the, I think what for me, I had a very strong critic and what allowed it to transform was at some point in some meditation, I just was able to open to the feeling of how it felt to be on the receiving end of the judgments. Usually we take the point of view of the judge and yes, you're not good enough and you didn't do that right. But if you take the vantage point of how it feels, it's painful. It sucks. It's horrible to be taught like that. If you, if you imagine your best friend saying that stuff to you every day, they would be shifting from the friend category very quickly <laughs> over to the very difficult <laughs> person, right? 
but somehow we let it rip in ourselves and to, you know, and to ask yourself, do I want to put up with this voice, this cruelty? This is a cartoon I like to read that makes light of this because it's good to, you know, it's good to laugh, otherwise it just ain't funny. And um, this is called The Checklist of Feeling Pathetic. <laughs> in case you, uh, you might identify some of your meditation habits in here. So there's six captions. The first one, she's thinking about someone who's doing great. Choose somebody and compare yourself unfavorably to them. <laughs> now she's looking in the mirror. Examine your face closely in the mirror and notice all the flaws. Relive, em- this is a popular meditation one, relive embarrassing and awful moments that occurred years ago. <laughs> and this is also a popular meditation theme. Make a mental note of all the people you regularly disappoint, <laughs> especially people who share your last name. <laughs> and disregard all compliments, especially from people who supposedly love you. <laughs> There's a caption, there was someone saying, oh, you look great, and she's saying, don't patronize me. <laughs> and lastly, another popular meditation theme, resign yourself to believing that from now on, this is how you will always feel. <laughs> so talk about a setup for suffering. That's what we do. So good to see it, name it, oh, judging, thank you, have a nice day, I'm going to go back to my meta practice. may I be happy. May you be happy. May we all be happy. May we all be free from judgment. So I did want to mention before the end of the talk that the other aspect of compassion practice, the the quality of compassion, it's a feeling and it's also an impulse. It's a verb. It's a movement. It's a it's a inclination of the heart to relieve the suffering. It just doesn't. It doesn't. It's not just the sitting here and feeling empathy and caring, but it's it's actually the movement to want to help, to actually get up and do something about the suffering. Sometimes people think that this practice is often too passive. But it's actually only one aspect of the practice. There's a pra- part of the practice that's very receptive, that's receiving, that's allowing, that's meeting the truth of what is with equanimity, as Gina spoke beautifully last night. There's also the dynamic part of wise action, where we feel compelled to move, to act, to engage, to relieve the suffering of ourselves, of others, of the world, in many different ways. So the metaphor that's given is the when, we have, when the right hand has a cut, the left hand doesn't go, hmm, that's very interesting, I feel may you be free of suffering. No, it just it moves and it soothes and it takes care of. That's, that's, that's the movement, the impulse. It's the, it's the, it's the, it's the unthinking, spontaneous uh, desire to act in some way. As people have said, when people are crying, can I reach out to them? That's the movement of compassion. In this context, we're not encouraging that for various reasons, but it, but it, 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 it comes from that genuine place of that impulse. So and we see it in many different ways. There was a great story during the, um, there was a teenager, a Marin teen, a teenager in the county where I live, um, who um, uh, was so moved by what was happening in Haiti, and she was only 15, I think, 16. And she raised thousands of dollars to, so she could go and take money and, and, and work with some of the children there in, in, the, in some of the villages. And um, you know, there's millions of stories where people are moved in some way to, to act, to relieve, to care, to help, as I'm sure many of you are here. And so the invitation of the practice, again, is to step outside of 
the realm, these, these qualities are boundless qualities. You know, these are the quality of matter, of compassion, boundless, which means they extend beyond our normal reach of the people that we are near and dear, our friends and family. But we extend out to those we don't know. We may have never had any contact with them. We might even like them, but there's a movement to help, to care, to relieve suffering. That's the quality of the heart. The, um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Einstein put it this way. He said, um, a human being is part of the whole called by, him, by, by us a universe, a part limited in time and space, and experiences himself, his thoughts and feelings as something separated from the rest, a kind of optical delusion of consciousness. This delusion is a kind of a prison for us, restricting us to our personal desires and affection for a few persons nearest and dearest. Our task must be to free ourselves from this prison by widening our circle of compassion, compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature and its beauty. It's a beautiful expression of, of the, where this practice is moving. You know, we live in the optical delusion of consciousness. We believe we're separate, we're not connected. And yet somebody cries and we feel tenderness. Somebody laughs and we feel joy. The sun blooms and it, we feel happiness. You know, we're incredibly connected. And the, in, in Buddhist teaching, a beautiful flowering of that quality of compassion is the quality of bodhicitta, which, which is this movement in the heart, this impulse that grows out of deep understanding and deep compassion and deep desire to relieve the suffering of life, the suffering of all beings. No matter how large the suffering is, there's, a, there's an inner commitment to doing whatever one can to dedicate one's life to the relieving of suffering in whatever way you can, however it presents itself to you. Very beautiful um, archetype and uh, an ideal and also something that we can aspire to, an aspiration. And of course, there's many, many people who embody that. Dalai Lama, of course, is a wonderful embodiment of that. So is Aung San Suu Kyi, who stayed for so long now, over 20 years or some, in house arrest, off and on, currently probably a brief respite out of house arrest, but she's stayed in her country. She's given up seeing her children grow up and her husband passing away because she's a light for her people. And she's committed. She's a bodhisattva. She's one who's dedicated her life to relieving the suffering of others. This is the flowering of this quality of compassion. Sees way beyond the personal needs of the self and gives tremendous faith and confidence and courage to the people around as she does. So maybe I'll close with this uh, reading from Bernard Shaw. Two readings. No. Let's have a look, see if my glasses can read. (laughs) A short reading from Emily Dickinson. (laughs) Very short. Goodness me. She writes in her beautiful, succinct way. (laughs) 
If I can stop one heart from breaking, I shall not live in vain. If I can ease one life the aching, or cool one pain, or help one fainting robin unto his nest again, I shall not live in vain. I shall not live in vain. If I can stop one heart from breaking, one life from aching. And this is how George Bernard Shaw puts it. And again, I think a beautiful expression of um, this movement of the heart, the, 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 um, the embodiment or the, the, um, uh, how, how this, this, this heart of compassion can start from meeting the suffering of ourselves and the, those around us to really wanting to bring a, a, a genuine transformation to suffering wherever we find it. He writes, this is the true joy in life, being used for a purpose recognized by yourself as a mighty one. I am of the opinion that my life belongs to the whole community, and as long as I live, it is my privilege to do for it whatever I can. I want to be thoroughly used up when I die, for the harder I work, the more I love. I rejoice in life for its own sake. Life is no brief candle to me. It is a sort of splendid torch which I have got to hold up for the moment and I want to make it burn as brightly as possible before handing it on to future generations. So let's sit together for a moment. Sensing your heart, sensing the response to these words, and just being watchful of not using anything that's said here as a way just to feel bad or like, oh, I haven't developed that or I, that's, you know, that's inaccessible for me. So to be careful of, of how the mind can easily turn that, but just to, to see a sense into this as a possibility that we all have within us as we meet our pain with kind heart. So thank you for your attention. So we'll have some time for some walking and we'll come back for uh, sitting and chanting at nine o'clock.